0: Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I am an avid family historian who has been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with nearly 20,000 people recorded in my trees. Episode 21 The Life of Alexander Nicol. This episode features Sarah Nielsen, who you would have heard her story back. In Episode 5, The Mystery of Maisie. If you haven't heard The Mystery of Maisie yet, I suggest that you go back and listen to her episode first before launching into this episode of Alexander. This will give you more perspective into the family of Alexander and how Maisie and Alexander are connected. I'm very excited to have Sarah back. She does an enormous amount of research into her family history and delves into lots of different records to be able to uncover the person that they were She has also created a fictional novel based on Alexander's life. And she will refer to that novel as she uncovers the story of Alexander for us. Welcome Sarah, yet again. And today you are going to be discussing Alexander Nicholl, another interesting person you found in your family tree research.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me again.
0: So how did you first come across Alexander and his story? And why is his story so interesting to you?
1: Alexander was my grandmother's uncle, but it was told to me when I was researching Maisie, the family story was that Alexander was actually her father. Which the age worked out. And so when I started to research where Maisie came from, the first place I started was him. My grandmother's brother, his middle name was Alexander. So I knew that he was someone special to their mother, to Maisie. But I knew absolutely nothing about him. We knew very little of where they lived, where they grew up. We honestly knew nothing. So having to start with names, you know, what I knew, and, and then backtracking. Originally, I was looking for clues that he was Maisie's father. But then I had to research so many facets of his life. I couldn't have made this up if I tried. (laughs) I looked on births, deaths and marriages to gather a bit more information about who his mother was, what his father's name was. And of course, it was one of these traditional Scottish families where his name was Alexander, his father's name was Alexander. His father's name was Alexander. So trying to find them all in in different areas can be challenging at times as well. No middle names. So what I managed to find, first of all, was that he was the oldest of, of the family. He was born nearly nine months to the day after Margaret, Susanna and Alexander were married. So he was born in December 1881 in South Yarra. They lived in South Yarra at that time and it was not long after that the family the little family of 3 moved to Tasmania finding these early times was really difficult because particularly this family they rented where they lived so i was relying on rates notices and not all of them like Tasmania doesn't have all of their rates notices published you normally have to go into their libraries i know Geelong hold a lot of theirs in their history centre as well so you can go in and find them but that wasn't always doable for me so I was having to go with what I could find on ancestry and on trove so finding where their parents were at different times mainly births of children so going on to births, deaths and marriages and typing in the mother and father and just seeing how many children come up sometimes it does adjust for spelling mistakes or name variations which is good not always though so being the last name Nickel, they spell it N-I-C-O-L. I tried it, different, you know, different ways of spelling, which came up with different things. One thing I did find was there was another baby born before they left, Susanna. Susanna died very, very young once they got to Tasmania and I did find she is buried there and I did find her death certificate there. But that a lot of these things I sort of went back and filled in because you sort of... You get a gauge of where they are and what they're doing, and then you think, well, hang on, I've got a really big gap there. Can I fill in any more about where they were? So focusing on Alexander, he moved, you know, at two years old, he moved with his family to Tasmania. What they did there, I still don't know. His father was a carpenter, and from what I can see, a relatively successful one in South Yarra, because... He'd had some advertisements in the paper. He'd actually been to the Court of Petty Sessions to some people that hadn't paid for work and that sort of thing. So it sort of pieced together for me that he was a fairly astute businessman. Margaret Susanna obviously was at home with the baby. Margaret Susanna's father, Harrison Ord, was an evangelist. So it is believed that Margaret Susanna and Alexander met through that whole revival in Melbourne, Margaret Susanna would go along with her father to his public preachings and that Alexander was there. To verify that, they they don't have, I suppose, church records or anything like that. So I had to try and place where Harrison Ord was and, and where he was preaching was in and around sort of central Melbourne. They did a bit near now the Old Scots Church, around that precinct, so Alexander was in, the, the father was in Fitzroy and that's what I gathered from, again, from marriage certificates and then working backwards. So I kind of pieced together that that story sort of fits. He'd had a bit of a troubled childhood. You know, their family had moved around. I don't know that they were overly well off. And then, you know, his father at some stage had left. His mother's bur- buried in the Melbourne Cemetery in an unmarked grave so that again things like that told me okay not even enough money for a headstone you know they then for some reason they moved to tasmania i can't seem to find much about it i can see where they lived they certainly announced births of children there so alex would have been there until until he was about four maybe even five so you know would he have had memory of tasmania possibly he might you know i have some early memories snippets but he could have. The family then all of a sudden moved back to Geelong. Again, they hadn't lived in Geelong yet, but that's where Margaret Susanna's father then was with his new wife. Whether they realised they needed family support, that was a possibility. And they started a Geelong Laundry Co there. And Margaret was quite involved with that. There was advertisements in the paper. So she was quite involved. It was, you know, she called herself Mrs Nickel. You know, people would bring their laundry. There was quite a market for it. They again had another three children in Geelong. So again, easy to track through birth certificates. That was also how I knew about Susanna, that they did mention her when there were other children born. You know, there was a sibling that was deceased. Then in 1894, Alexander's father passed away. He'd had psittosis for quite some time. So I guess it's sort of relative to tuberculosis, but it was something they could suffer with for a long time, which apparently he did. Their youngest, she was only just one when her father died. He's buried at Geelong, again, in an unmarked grave. And interestingly, he shares a grave not with his wife, but with a woman who was very good friends with Margaret Susanna's father and stepmother. So it was sort of just, I guess, it was a practicality. It was, this is what's available. I can't imagine how daunting it would have been to have had six children And I guess Alex, by this stage, you know, he's 12 when his father died. He's old enough to go out to work in in that day and age in 1894. So the family then moves to Paran in 1896. That's when I can track that they're there. Margaret Susanna does have a brother living in Melbourne. He was in St Kilda at the time, but... Again, to move six children just for your brother who's single, you know, he had a property at Panton Hill, which he spent most of his spare time on, otherwise he was out riding his horse. There's not much of a support network here. So it's always been a little bit of a mystery to me why she would move away from the support network. I guess life, yes, there was probably more work prospect here in Melbourne, perhaps, but Peran and Windsor, she moved around a lot in those areas. They were not Great areas for a single mother with six children to be living in. I guess trying to track what Alex was doing at that time is really hard because he's not on the electoral roll for some time. But I did find an article that his younger sister Greta went to a like a secretarial school. So it was clearly, Margaret was still clearly quite big on the kids being educated as much as she could. I guess my whole focus was around that 1900 mark because that's when Maisie was born. And so I was sort of trying to find where was Alex in that time. I can't find him anywhere. I can go by where Margaret Susanna rented properties and in some of them it will tell you how many people live in the house. So I'm trying to count per child and all of a sudden in 1902 one drops off. And I'm thinking, okay, so is this him leaving the house? This was later, it was probably one of the most recent pieces of information that I finally found him in 1903 in Queenscliff. So he's 22 by this stage. He's on the electoral roll. They've spelt his name incorrectly, so that's why it didn't come up with any sort of search. But backtracking, it had said that he came from the RAA at Queenscliff Barracks. So that was clearly he was there. I then got on to Queens, Fort Queenscliff. They were amazing, came back, confirmed. Yep, in 1902, he joined. He, he came down here. So I guess by that stage, his older brother was probably old enough and his sister was helping mum out. She was also working as an infant life nurse, so she was earning an income. And so it was probably his time to say, well, look, I can do something outside of living in the home. I don't doubt he was probably still sending money back to her to help. But he was starting to get a bit of freedom. After a year, he was back in Hobart, which I found really interesting. There was a unit that was moved from Queenscliff to Battery Point. And I found it funny that that he should do that, you know, to move states and back to there. It was an interesting move. I did actually write a memoir on his life. And in the story, the part that I surrounded with it was that he you know, he had that yearning to go back to Hobart. He had fond family memories from there, and so it was a it was a choice straight away. I did a lot of research on this unit at Battery Point, and they didn't have a great reputation. They were loud. They were known to be drinking up and down the street at all hours. I mean, Hobart it was not a huge place, and anything that went on on the wharves you could hear. And that's basically what they got up to. And it was, you know, they, the army were disgusted with the way they behaved quite often. Then all of a sudden, much to my shock, in 1905, there's a marriage notice in the paper that he has married this woman by special licence. So it means basically they don't need anyone's permission. They've just gone out and done it at a registry office. Looking at it, both he and she have lied about their ages and and all sorts of things. I was then intrigued by the woman he married because naturally my thought went to, well, was this Maisie's real mother? And, you know, if he is her father, maybe this is Maisie's mother. And he couldn't have picked someone more opposite to his own family than, than Nellie. She... Came from the rocks in New South Wales. That was where she was born. Her family are so interesting. They were Irish. I've actually connected with some of her descendants from her family, and they've got a family story that the mother, who was also Ellen, Ellen Cross, she gave birth to twins. It was after her husband had died. She was pregnant while he died, and then gave birth to them in the morning, and that afternoon still went out and milked the cows. Like, talk about. Tough woman. So, if this is the type of upbringing that Nellie's had, pretty impressive woman. She's she's going to be tough. But I can tell that she she loves a good time. She married firstly a, a bloke called Frederick Lawton. Frederick worked in a billiard house, which I found a really interesting job. Like they married in eighteen eighties. So. I think it was like a couple of years or a couple of years after Alex was born, she was marrying her first husband. So she was 20 years older than him. Frederick and she lived in New South Wales, not for very long. And then he brought her back to Tasmania, which was where he was initially from. They owned hotels there, always owned hotels. And she, I think, enjoyed that her husband owned a hotel because she enjoyed to drink. There's... Hilarious articles written about her in Hobart. She causes a lot of issues, usually after she's had a few drinks. And and everything was documented then because they had roving reporters that if they heard anything, it's like the paparazzi of today. If they heard about something, they'd write it, they'd give it to the paper and the paper would publish it. She's accused of smashing windows. She's accused of trying to poison herself. At one so she's accused of lighting fires in her husband's hotel. She still, like, she's hilarious. But then her poor husband, he actually suffered with diabetes and she would constantly, she was trying to bring him to New South Wales and to Melbourne to try and find treatments. And unfortunately, on one of the trips back, he actually died on, on the boat. There was an outpouring in Hobart when he died. You know, it was... It was said that he was a really lovely man, but she was, you know, she puts in these memorials for him, but she was so devastated that she married 16 months later to a bloke 20 years younger than her. After a year of wedded bliss, I then find there's an article in the paper and in the Police Gazette that Alex has deserted his wife and he was last known in Goulburn. So he was a a farming labourer and this whole... You know, I guess I'm starting to see this pattern that he's got this tendency sort of to run off. I don't know if it's when things get too hard he runs off or whether he's just a guy that sort of wants to wander a little bit. But he runs off in 1906. They think he's in Goulburn, but he's found in Melbourne. He, he keeps, as I kept saying to him, and he runs back to mummy each and every time. They get back together then. He goes back and he's, and he's back with her they decide to move to Tasmania again and they decided to start a pub in South Bridgewater, which is now Glenorchy. And I just thought, why on earth would you two, who are like a Molotov cocktail as it is, Alex has gone down and punched this guy in the face for only serving him half a bag of horse feed. And then Nellie goes back again, drunk, with a gun. Often they were both in, in and out of hospital, She drove drunk. I mean, yes, a horse and cart, but she had an accident and she was was gravely ill for a while. In the end, they clearly decide to go their separate ways. They don't ask for another lease, you know, but he doesn't try and renew the licence. And in around 1912, he comes back to Melbourne and she goes back to New South Wales. He still has to pay her, even if they're apart. And this happened with so many families. The husband still paid. It's almost like they looked after him but said, I just... Don't want to be near you. I don't want to live near you. They lived states apart. I've got records of her coming back and forth, her looking for him, her writing letters looking for him, searching at his mother's property for him, constant police notification of he's not looking after me, he's not looking after me. So, she, you know, by this stage, she's into her early 50s. She's thinking, oh, I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be doing anything. One stage, she's living with her family who were only what is now probably a three minute drive from where Alex's mum lived, which is where he kept going back to. So they were quite close. Their families probably went past each other in the street a hundred times. So by 1914, at the first opportunity to enlist, he does. He's down there at South Melbourne. He enlists, he lies about his age to make sure he is hundred percent in and off on that boat. He was off on one of the first boats out of here. So he was with the first Light Horse Field Ambulance. He didn't come back until 1919. But this is where I started to get a little bit more information about he and Nellie. He he was cheeky when he enlisted that, you know, million dollar question. Are you married? It's really easy. He says no. He definitely was. And who is your next of kin? Which their next of kin was where their paycheck was going. It certainly wasn't being given to them. Mum. Yep. So Nellie finds out and the letters, it's, it's just so funny, the letters back and forth, you know, um, I believe my husband is actually at war. I am his wife. She had to come to Melbourne, and this is where I feel terribly sorry for Nellie. You almost can't pick a side of, of who sort of did what worse. She came to Melbourne and had to prove at the army barracks that she was his wife and here is our marriage certificate so that she could start being paid so at least this was a way she was going to get some sort of income and they write the letter to him to let him know and he said, oh I'm so sorry I didn't understand the question okay so <laughs> <laughs> blessings to the army at the time they said okay all right no problem so we'll start sending it to her now and so she's there, she's happily getting an income. He comes back again, he stays, he stays with mum. And now I, I started to see advertisements of, um, you know, he was asking for work in the paper. So probably trying to earn money, cash in hand, that way he didn't have to pay her. He was quite unwell when he came back from war. So he probably was unfit to work really. So he stayed living with his mum and, you know, his mum by this stage is sort of getting on. So he looks after the property there. I know that he was close to his brother because I've read through, you know, speaking of dysfunctional, all his brother's divorce records and people had mentioned where they contacted him. You know, he was probably quite stoic and trustworthy, but had this cheeky side of his own life. It's sort of made me sad as well that I I don't know of any other sort of love stories that he had at the time other than his wife. And it really went pear shaped. There must have been some sort of a lustful attraction at one stage. And you can see from the turbulence of their relationship this break up, get back together, break up leave, come back, leave, come back. There must have been something there. But but knowing researching both their lives, you think, yeah, I can't pick two people that I would not put together more than you two you could do amazing things or you could cause massive issues <laughs> um, so he stays in and around elston at that stage again i see him popping in and out of the paper Nellie keeps throwing in some desertion things as well in and out of the paper around the 30s he does have to go to court he has to go back to new south wales to, to start paying her a bit more money as well. She's getting on, you know, it's constantly, she's it's, it's in the police gazette that they're looking for him. He does live with his brother for a little bit during one of his brother's breakups in the thirties. So it's sort of, I don't know whether you could ever say he really had a principal place of residence. Yes, I guess that was with his mum, but you know, that was always his mother's home. Come 1939, he enlists again. The, the second he can get back into serving, he does, but he's too old by this stage. He's in his late 50s, but he could serve um, at Royal Park. So he's there, he's in the recruitment area, and, and that was always his constant. He was a member of the Corfield return services, and I saw he used to put ads in the paper um, around Christmas time wishing all of his comrades, you know, a happy Christmas. The military was his passion in the um, grassroots sort of way. Still stayed around that Alstonwick area. um, And then 1944, his mother passed away. Given that there were so many children, he was not listed as a executor of her will. Being the eldest, that's, you know, that's a bit strange. And at the same time, he was actually not mentioned in her will, which again, I found that that sort of was a bit shocking for me because I found that early on but I saw that his brother got two portions. And I asked a retired solicitor and I said, I know this is a very old will, (laughs) he said, hmm, what was the brother's life like? And I said, oh, well, this, and he said, no, back then the, the wife, because she was still his wife, could have gone that entire inheritance. So to cover it, Harris and Jeffrey has taken that money for his brother and sat it there and sat with his portion. So he's still living at Gardenvale in the family home. So surprisingly, his brothers and sisters have not decided to sell the family home as yet. And then his aunt, who is his father's sister, she lived not far in Moorabbin and she passes away. In her probate, the house is derelict. No one could live in it, but Alexander can afford to purchase it. And so he does. So he buys his first home with his portion of that money. It's a little block that sat there and it was a little weatherboard Victorian home and he moves in and, you know, he got some chooks and turned it into his own. When I was researching him living there, which unfortunately the property's not there now, I found that there was another family living there, the White family. Anyway, I managed to find who they were through Ancestry and found someone who'd done a bit of work on them. And this gentleman said, oh, look, actually, I've just put them in, but I'm going to get you in contact with their granddaughter because she'd love to chat with you. So, okay, anyway, she said, I used to stay at the house. I remember Alec. She said, we actually called in Nick. That was what we Nickel, Nick, so that made sense. And she was able to tell me so many stories about the type of person he was, which again started to form this whole that he was this gentle giant. Yeah, he probably was a bit cheeky, he had an upbringing where he didn't have a father from the age of 12 a mother that was probably focusing on other children and they actually lived with him there and the there was a late a lady and husband and the husband actually passed away in that house and then the mrs white and alex lived together you know for another sort of 15 months um, before he passed away so I don't know whether there was a companionship there, what it was, or just, you know, friendship. I'm not sure. But it was nice that I got to learn a little bit more about him. And in his will, he says that she can live there for as long as she pleases. It's her home as well. And it's funny because I found a photo. There was a, a company that had a business next door. And in this photo, it came up on, a uh, you know, one of those sort of historical things on Facebook and In the side of it, you can just see the side of a weatherboard house. with, And you know the Victorian sash windows that are at the side. And I sent it to Sandra and said, do you recognise anything? And she said, that has just given me shivers down my spine. That's the house. So that's the only thing we've got of it, her description. And this little side of the home. Nellie died before him. She unfortunately died like completely destitute, basically. She'd gone from boarding house to boarding house. Nellie was meant to inherit quite a substantial amount of money from when her first husband died. But the way he'd written his will, it was quite there's quite a lot in the newspapers about it, and the case went to the High Court. It was really confusing. What ended up happening with it was that the judge actually said, I take pity on her because she should have got everything. However, he'd left portions to his nieces and to the Lawtons He'd left all his real estate to his wife, whereas he actually didn't own the real estate. He'd already made an agreement of sale, so lease before purchase, had a heap of coffee houses everywhere. And he was an innocent purchaser. He was purchasing the Albion Hotel, he thought. He'd, really, he'd actually left her nothing because that lease was always going to click over. And the judge actually said, I don't know if this was a really poor oversight or whether it was a cruel joke. And, and that was really sad because she, I mean, she was devastated from what I could read and learn when her husband died. What had really happened? Had he, I can't imagine that that would be such an oversight. He had quite a good solicitor. She, had, she obviously was quite a colourful character because learning the family knew stories of this young man, Alec, that she married, and they didn't like him. Naturally, of course, he's 20 years younger than her. She seems like she, at this stage, she's going to get a fortune. And I, there were times where I thought maybe that is why he got together with her. Maybe he thought he was just going to ride the coattails of her ex husband. When she was with Frederick, her first husband, she obviously couldn't have children. And she did try to adopt one of her sister's children. And at one stage, they did. They did adopt him. When Frederick died, the boy went back to her sister. So that would have been quite a, I guess, an offence that, you know, he, he wasn't fit to stay with Nellie. And then apparently she tried again to ask her brother if she and Alec could adopt one of the children. And she was told no. To the point where this Kate says to me that, you know, she wasn't even allowed to hold the babies, basically, when she came. And I thought, wow, like what what happened that that, that was how they remembered her? But You know, she always dressed amazingly, apparently. She was in the most exquisite outfits and, you know, decked out with hats and umbrellas and all of it. So she was living well beyond her means. When she was with Frederick, she had an amazing, you know, they were race goers. And if there was somewhere to be, they were there. And whereas with Alex, he he didn't come from anything like that. You know, the women in his life were the complete opposite to the way Nellie was. So it was you know, whether it was a bit of a rebellion that he went out and, and found her and settled with her. There was um, coroner's report for his niece's husband who died. He accidentally poisoned himself, but he was a bit of an abusive husband. And at one stage, she'd come back to the family home. Her grandmother was still alive. And Alex was obviously living at the house at this stage with his mother. and. The daughter, Phyllis, has come to visit the grandmother and the husband's shown up at the house and he's going on with all sorts, threatening, he's tried to hit her and, and be quite violent in front of Alex and she she writes in it, what I remember is that my uncle grabbed him and had to sort him out then. So again, whilst it was an awful thing to read, it was a lovely thing that he was clearly was quite defensive of his own. and. There is one photo that the whites had that they believe is him. You know, I see similarities, but again, a bit like photos of, you know, Maisie's mother. Am I just looking for those similarities? But it's what it's what I imagine him to be. He's sort of big and strong. He's smiling. He does have sort of features that are similar to his mother's, because I've got photos of his mother. So I can see a resemblance there. I can see how it how that could be the same. They clearly had quite a special relationship I guess to live together for that amount of time just before he died he was on a on a war pension and he wrote a letter I don't know whether it was to get more pension money or just for himself he does use a line it was a quote that I loved that he said um it's just a simple thing but something but something for my own he did actually do all of his sergeant's training and when he was discharged, he was a sergeant. However, he'd only been a lance corporal in terms of actions. War, war finished just as he became a sergeant and was named it. And he said, but I was a sergeant. And this is what he's saying in the letter. He said, it's just for me to be remembered as that. And he said, because, I, because that's what I was. And I, I thought, you know, he's written this letter in 1956, just before he died. His devotion to the, you know, to the AIF that was what he was about, I guess, he, in his reflection of his life. So I actually wrote a letter to His ashes are in the Garden of Remembrance at Springvale. And he was a Lance Corporal there. And I said, look, you know, he is remembered as that. Could he be remembered as a sergeant? Because that's what he wanted to be remembered as. This is the letter that he wrote. And there was no question about it. I think it was within about six weeks they wrote back to me and said, absolutely, we've changed it. The plaque's been changed. He's a sergeant. Which was so nice that, you know, those little things that you can do other than just compiling this research, you learn things. I mean, I gained so much from it, but that's there forever now. And that's when someone else does research of any sort, his record's been changed that he was a sergeant. And it's something that he wanted. I know that he was he was quite a Christian person, whilst he certainly didn't show it sometimes in some of his actions. When his aunt died, he wrote a little you know, he wrote a little thing in the paper. He also loved, he did love to write. And the people who'd lived with him, they said that. They said, oh, we knew that. That he, yes, he did like to write little things. And, you know, he was obviously had a creative sense. He was always writing to the paper, you know, as he got older. Things like, he believed that when he bought a bag of sugar recently, he could have sworn it had sand in it. It wasn't just sugar. The matches, it was only half full, you know, and he was, Everything, an injustice he was always, but also he would write with little ideas about, you know, things for his chooks or, and he did enter some of his chickens into competitions and that was in the paper. He wrote a letter saying, I'm trying to put together a a bit of a booklet of my pieces and I wrote a letter to the paper in 1922 and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he sounds, how crazy does he sound? I wrote a letter to the paper in 1922. I'm wondering if you still might have it. Because I've lost my copy of my poem that I wrote. Well, lucky for me, Trove, I can go back to 1922 and I managed to find it. And it's this poem that he wrote when he was working on the aqueduct up uh, near Chum Creek in the Yarra Valley. And he writes... About the valley of the Chum and it's Chum Creek is one of the most beautiful places to go to. After we found this poem, we actually took our kids to stay for a weekend up there and we stayed at the most beautiful little place that was, you know, it's so beautiful. And I can see why he wrote about it and the things. It's just like he's just sitting there, just watching life pass by, but it's, it's a beautiful poem. We have it, we have it framed up in our house and my daughter actually read it at school as they had to do a poem reading and she chose to read that which you know again something that we can take i'm so lucky to have that from him because it's you know it's something of his that you know otherwise a lot of people don't have um so i might not have a confirmed photo but i feel like i've got everything else and of course you know all of his war dossiers there's so much so many pages because of these letters Back and forth, back and forth with Nellie and her changing address, her not getting paid. He's not paid me again, and um, I believe that his rankings change. Does that mean my payment changes? I spoke to the War Museum and I said, you know, World War One. There's there's no photo, and they said, no. Look, those ones we sort of had to rely on Daj or you know if someone had a photo. They said, but if he was if he was the Second World War. All of them should have photos. Well, of course, his is the one that doesn't have one. And I said, of all of them. But I then was able to open a file that was all of his war pension files. And this stuff, on the cover of it, it is set to be destroyed. So this is paperwork that was going to be destroyed. And someone's obviously seen it and gone, I reckon these files are worth keeping. And I'm sure where ours is, there's, there's hundreds. So this was right from him coming home from the Second World War, claiming his pension. He had to have medicals every six to 12 months to make sure that, you know, he had malaria. So that was why he couldn't work properly. He did lose his pension in his later years or a lot of his pension because he had emphysema. They said, that's because you smoke. That's nothing to do with. That's nothing to do with your war effort, thanks anyway. It was things like that though, but they couldn't work. Some of them mentally couldn't work. Um, I can't even imagine what what his life was coming back from some of the things he might have seen being in the field ambulance. At one stage when they sent a letter out that he died, they didn't know that his wife had died. I mean, I saw it because I saw the funeral notice from her siblings, but here they are sending this letter out and they, you know, they say to his widow, we're terribly sorry he's passed away. And then they said, you know, we haven't had a letter back from her. We haven't. And it's this research of finding out and then saying, no, she actually passed away, you know, nearly 10 years ago. This is how she died. And it's sort of a recount that she was, you know, basically just, you know, the Benevolent Society. She had been an inmate there after breaking her hip. She, it was really really sad the two of them i guess their demise later in life from what they were early on researching him was amazing and and it still is i still i still find little things that i still pop in there and you know things about his life her life articles how they all marry in they certainly made an imprint on the areas that that they lived in it branches off into other areas of who you research and when you, you know, finding their siblings, finding their children, it seems like you're crowding a lot, but you'll be surprised the little mentions or snippets of your person that you're looking at is in those other files. So it's worth reading through, definitely. So you have written a book on Alexander? Yes, I, I wrote a self-published book. I, like I've still found out more since I've written then and I've got advice from a lot of authors. I've connected with them and they've said we've all got that novel that we wrote and then we go back to it later on and and that you know second or third edition of it is the thing that really is complete and I guess learning so much more um, I do love writing as a hobby there's so many gaps that I could still fill with his um, but it was it was really fun having that creative license to think well how did they one part that I, I mentioned earlier I found it sad that it seems like he only ever had Nellie, maybe this companion later in life. but He never really had, you know. I guess was Nellie his true love? Was she a, a true um, partner to him? I, I did portray in the novel that perhaps they they were at one stage, but it was more of a lustful relationship. So I wrote in that he that he had a, a dalliance when he was at war, because um, <laughs> that was that was far more fun for me. <laughs> To put that in, that he had, you know, that he had something. And, and my grandmother, I don't know that she would have remembered him. She may have, but she spoke of him so fondly, you know, Uncle Alec. And I thought the way my grandmother was and that I can assume her mother was and certainly the way her father was, I can't imagine they would have liked him at all. Well, my great-grandfather certainly would have. And I did write a scene in the book where when um, Maisie meets George, and um, and I did, I did, I was able to add a bit of, you know, it's my favourite part of the book because they they do tease poor George a little bit because he's a bit more straight laced than them.
0: <laughs> oh well, well, thank you so much for telling us the wonderful story of Alexander yes. and Nelly. Thank you so much, Sarah. No, thank you so
1: much. This has been good fun i've been glad to bring it back to the surface again certainly an absolutely fascinating story
0: if you are interested in sharing your story on my podcast family history mysteries please go to my facebook page and send me a message if you would like some assistance in filling in the gaps in your family tree to see what mysteries you solve please get in touch And don't forget you can have early access to episodes by subscribing and you'll also gain access to bonus episodes.